Peter devoted the first chapter of his second epistle to exhorting believers to grow in godliness so that we will not be deceived or taken in by false teachers. Peter's readers were particularly susceptible to false teaching because of their situation. They were scattered and suffering. Peter entered chapter 1 by laying out the tools for growing in godliness, namely the Old and New Testament revelation. Not only are the two testaments tools for growing in godliness, but they are an antidote against false teachers and their teaching. With his death drawing near and the threat of false teachers growing, Peter goes all in on his warning against false teachers in chapter 2. Though we are exhorted to heed the Old Testament prophet's prophetic word, beware, not all prophets are from God. Since Adam and Eve, Satan has been in the business of deceiving people with false prophets, false teachers, false Christians, false gospels, and false righteousness. 2 Corinthians 11.3, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Hence, Peter provides a warning, a judgment, and a profile of false teachers in the second chapter of his second epistle. He begins here in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, with a five-part warning about false teachers, exposing their objectives, activities, and destructions. We're going to see five things. First, we're going to see that false teachers are a continuous threat. Secondly, we will see that they promote destructive heresies. Third, we will see that they promote alluring immorality. We will see, number four, that they have impure motives. And then finally, number five, we will see that they are doomed to judgment. So let's begin with chapter 2 and verse 1. But false prophets, pseudo-prophetes, also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers, pseudo-didaskalos, among you. False teachers are a continuous threat. That's our first warning. Peter states that false prophets arose among the people in the past. These pa people in the past refer to Israel. Throughout Israel's history, they dealt with their fear of false prophets, such as Balaam, the prophets of Baal, and Hananiah. The term false prophet, pseudo-prophetes, describes a prophet who deliberately deceives. It denotes the idea that these false prophets knew that they were purposefully misleading others with their purported prophecies. The term false teachers, pseudo didaskalas, describes a teacher who deliberately deceives. The change from false prophets to false teachers is likely due to these teachers whom Peter was dealing with refusing to be called prophets. However, like the false prophets of old, false teachers know that they are purposefully misleading others by teaching falsehoods. Notably, they promote a message that is irreconcilable with biblical orthodoxy. And understanding this term is important because it distinguishes a false teacher from someone who teaches the wrong thing out of ignorance. Anyone can unwittingly or unknowingly teach error. However, it is something far different and far more sinister to set out to deceive people deliberately. Now, throughout the Old Testament, God repeatedly warned his people about the dangers of false prophets. 
being a false prophet was punishable by death. Deuteronomy 13.5 But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God. False prophets were compared to Sodom and Gomorrah because of their immorality. Jeremiah 23.14 Also among the prophets of Jerusalem I have seen a horrible thing. The committing of adultery and walking in falsehood. And they strengthen the hands of evildoers, so that no one has turned back from his wickedness. All of them have become to me like Sodom and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. And God promises to pour out his wrath on all false prophets for their false teaching. Ezekiel twenty-two twenty-eight. Her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. Now, such a reaction to false prophets or false teachers may seem extreme in this age of toleration. However, God commands such extremes because, as will be evidenced, false prophets or teachers cause irreversible damage to God's people. These false teachers are still active amongst God's people, the church. Justin Martyr stated, Just as they were false prophets, contemporaneous with your holy prophets, so are there now many false teachers among us. He made that statement in the second century. While capital punishment for false prophets and teachers is off the table in a non-theocratic nation, Scripture still warns church elders to guard the flock from false teachers by being alert to, keeping an eye on, turning away from, separating from, and avoiding false teachers. Acts chapter 20, verse 28 to 31. Be on guard for yourself and for all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Romans 16, 17, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissension and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned, and turn away from them. 2 Corinthians six seventeen. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. 2 Timothy 3, 5, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. To turn away from, in Romans 16, 17, means to steer clear of false teachers. Separate, in 2 Corinthians 6, 17, means to remove oneself or be set apart from false teachers. Avoid, in 2 Timothy 3, 5, refers to deliberately staying away from a false teacher. And the exhortation is not to guard saints against those outside the church, but from those within the church, Jude 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. See, wanting to build a following, false teachers within the church will distort the truth to lead away some of the flock. And such individuals are savage wolves, a metaphor for false teachers. Matthew 7, 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Just as wolves are deadly to sheep, false teachers are deadly to the church. 
They are more dangerous than those outside the church because they appear to be part of the church. They look and act like sheep, but their words are perverse. Perverse in Acts 20.30 refers to that which is twisted or distorted. That is what false teachers do. They twist and distort God's word. Acts 13.10 You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? 2 Peter 3.16 As also in all his letters speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they also do the rest of the scripture to their own destruction. Hence it is necessary for elders to know sound doctrine so that you will be able to discern false teaching when you hear it. It is not enough to know sound doctrine. Elders, we must demonstrate it in our lives and we must disclose it to our people. Now the second warning about false teachers is that they promote destructive heresies. Second part of verse 1 who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Now the second warning here, again, is that they promote destructive heresies. Heresies are doctrines or teachings which do not conform to orthodoxy. Now those doctrines which are considered orthodox include the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, the God as creator, the triunity of the Godhead, the deity and virgin birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus and blood atonement for sin, the physical resurrection of Christ, and the return of Christ. Now, orthodoxy has no common ground with anything which denies it. You cannot uphold orthodoxy while excuse me, pursuing spiritual endeavors with those who are unorthodox. We must remove ourselves from compromise and unholy relationships. We need to remember the lesson of King Jehoshaphat. That is, compromising with those who deny God brings one under God's wrath. In 2 Chronicles 18, the godly King Jehoshaphat was trapped into compromising by the godless King Ahab. Ahab convinced Jehoshaphat to join him in securing Israel against the Syrians. And notwithstanding the warnings of holy prophets, Jehoshaphat joined with Ahab in what was seemingly a good cause. And as a result, God turned his wrath against Jehoshaphat. The conforming to orthodoxy aspect is critical to determining heresy. Within biblical Christianity, there are various or diverse opinions on theology. And these opinions, though different, should not be viewed as heretical. A doctrine or teaching is only heretical if it does not conform to orthodoxy. And sadly, throughout our history, believers have divided over minor theological issues and differences of personality. And such divisions are sin. Failure to reject heresy, though, is also a sin. And thus it is necessary to divide or separate over heresy. Peter provides an example of heresy denying the master who bought them. There are two denials of orthodoxy in that statement. A denial of Christ's person and work. No doubt, the reference to denial alludes to Jesus' own statement in Matthew 10.33. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 10.33. Denial of Christ results in future judgment at the great white throne. 
Now, the denial of Christ's person involves his role as master. The term master, despotes, denotes one who has complete ownership and supreme authority or lordship over another person. Acts 4.24, when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, O despotes, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. 2 Timothy 2.21, if anyone cleanses himself with these things, he'll be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, the despotes, prepared for every good work. Jude verse 4, certain persons have crept in unnoticed, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master, despotes, and Lord, Jesus Christ. To deny Christ's lordship or authority is to deny his deity. And the reason Jesus is referred to as master will be made clear in light of the verb bought. See, the denial of Christ's work relates to his work of redemption. The verb bought, agarazo, means to obtain by means of purchasing someone out of the slave market. In other words, when you buy a slave out of the marketplace, you're granting them freedom. Jesus freed us by paying our liability to God's wrath against our lawlessness, and we become his possession. 1 Corinthians 6.20 for you have been bought, agarazo, with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 7.23, you were bought, agarazo, with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Now, see, the word bought also carries the idea of the right of possession. Though the slave was purchased out of the slave market and granted freedom, they were now the possession of the one who bought them. According to Leon Morris, quote, the redeemed are paradoxically slaves the slaves of God, for they were bought with a price. Believers are not bought by Christ into a liberty of selfish ease. Rather, since they have been bought by God at a terrible cost, they have become God's slaves to do his will. Now, besides these two denials inerrant to the statement, Peter also establishes support for the unlimited atonement doctrine. Henry Alford states, quote, no assertion of universal redemption can be plainer than this. Now, limited atonement teaches that Christ only died and provided salvation for the elect. Unlimited atonement teaches that Christ died to atone for all, though not all will be saved. That Christ and died and provided redemption for those who deny him demonstrates that Christ died for all. If Christ died for all, then the atonement is unlimited. But to be clear, while salvation is provided to all, it is only applied to those who repent and believe. Now, believer, I want you to note two things about heresy. First, heresy is subtle. It is so subtle that false teachers can secretly introduce it. The verb secretly introduce, parasago, means to smuggle, use craftiness, or be nefarious. In other words, heresy is not going to come in and then be presented with warning lights. False teachers worm themselves in the church, gain the church's blessing, and then introduce their false teaching into the church. 2 Corinthians 11.13 For such men are false prophets, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Galatians 6.4 Each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not 
in regard to another. Jude 4, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So heresy is subtle, but notice this, second, heresy is destructive. By destructive, apolia, heresy causes so much damage that it often leaves its victims beyond repair theologically. Peter is quick to note that those who teach destructive heresies will bring swift destruction, apollia, upon themselves. That is, they will reap the same irreparable damage that they inflicted upon others. And their destruction will result in them being cast into the lake of fire. 2 Peter 3, 7. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Revelation 20.15, and if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. See, false teachers are going to try to smuggle heresy into the teaching ministry of the church by any means available. The subtlety on the part of these false teachers and the destructive nature of their heresy underscores the necessity of adding knowledge of biblical doctrine to your foundation of biblical doctrine. If you do not have a solid foundation of truth, you will be deceived by anything. And the foundation of truth is God's word. John 17, 17. Your word is truth. Furthermore, believer, you are commanded to dwell on things that are true. Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, and of good repute, if there is any excellence of anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The verb dwell on there in Philippians 4.8 means that we are to logically analyze in detail the great doctrinal truths of Scripture. The great doctrinal truths of Scripture are revealed in the Old and New Testament. And therefore, God's Word is an antidote against heresy. So, believer, beware. False teachers promote destructive heresies. False teachers are a continuous threat. And the third warning here about false teachers is that they promote alluring immorality. Verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. The third warning about false teachers is that they promote alluring immorality. Sensuality refers to a lack of restraint and indulging in all kinds of evil and moral impurity. And that the term is in the plural form indicates multiple acts of evil and moral impurity. Another term for sensuality is depravity. In other words, such a person has no shame or restraint. And sensuality or moral impurity is the hallmark of those who cast off God's law, such as the antinomian Gnostics. And it is such moral impurity that attracts many to these false teachers. Now note, Many will follow these false teachers. Irrespective of the teaching of scriptures, many believers will be taken in by false teaching. One need only examine the number of Christians today who are taken in by conspiracy theories about COVID-19, the election, and so-called deep state. The reason believers are so quick to be taken in by this nonsense is twofold. First, you see a boogeyman or devil behind everything. And second, you lack a foundation in biblical truth. Also, mega churches and having massive social media followings are not indicators of orthodoxy. Now, 
That is not to say that they are not orthodox, but neither does it indicate they are orthodox. Unfortunately, though, we have succumbed to the world's ideal that if a pastor has a megachurch or millions of followers on his social media account, then he is someone to follow without question. Questions about their teachings must be asked. Do they preach against sin or about judgment and hell? Chances are if they do not preach these things, it is because they are hiding some form of sensuality or immorality. And without fail, when a teacher is involved in sin, they will change their teaching on sin to ease their guilty consciences. Believer, you must beware of alluring immorality because it maligns the way of truth. Now the way of truth here is an allusion to Psalm 119 verse 30. I have chosen the way of truth. The term way in the early church was the name for the followers of Christ. Acts 9.2 I asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Acts 19.9 and 23 But when some were becoming hard and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. About that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. Acts 22.4, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. Acts 24.14 and 22, uh, This I admit to you that according to the way which they called a sect, do I serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. But Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. Now, Paul's testimony in Acts 24.14 is noteworthy pertaining to the followers of the way. He says that the followers of the way, including himself, believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. In other words, the early church understood the importance and place of the Old Testament. Now, in particular... The way also referenced the means of salvation through Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. The way of truth is one of many references to the gospel. Acts 16, 17. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out and saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Acts 18, 25, and 26. This man has been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. In 2 Peter 2.15, Peter states that the false teachers were forsaking the right way to follow the way of Balaam, the false prophet. Now, as people follow these false teachers in their alluring immorality, Peter says the way of truth or the gospel is maligned. The verb malign translates the Greek verb blasphemeo. It means to blaspheme or hurt the reputation of someone or something. As believers are taken in by the allure of these false teachers' immorality, it hurts the reputation of the gospel. Unbelievers see believers embracing immorality and they conclude that the way of truth is the way of error. They conclude that a gospel that embraces immorality cannot be from God. And by the way, previously, 
God indicted the Jews for their disobedience to his word, which in turn caused the Gentiles to blaspheme God's name. Romans 2, 4, quoting Isaiah 52, verse 5, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Believers, we need to be aware that we're not being caught up in their alluring immorality and, and by doing so, cause unbelievers to blaspheme the gospel. The fourth warning about false teachers is that they have impure motives. Verse 3, And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. The fourth warning about false teachers is that they have impure motives. In particular, false teachers are motivated by greed. According to Peter, these false teachers are trained in greed. Verse 14 of chapter 2. Micah described the false prophets of his days as those who pronounce judgment for a bribe, instruct for a price, and divine for money. Micah 3.11. Well, now, while those who labor in the word and doctrine are worthy of remuneration for their work, according to 1 Timothy 5.17, their motive for ministry must not be greed. Now, the term greed or greediness refers to an excessive and immodest desire to acquire more wealth. This excessive and immoderate desire acts out in extortion. The term, translated as greed, pleonexia, is a broader term that includes the love of money. Paul equated greed with idolatry as well, Colossians 3.5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Now see, in their greed, these false teachers exploit believers. The verb exploit there means to engage in business. And when joined to the term greed, it means to cheat or deprive through deceit. These false teachers peddle their immorality for their financial advantage. Paul directly addressed this issue in 2 Corinthians 2.17. For we are not like many, peddling the word of God. And if anyone wonders why anyone would buy what false teachers are selling, consider how they sell their immorality with false words. Plastois, lagois. The modern term plastic comes from the Greek term plastois, translated as false or fabricated. False words or fabricated stories is the false teacher's means of deceiving people into buying their immorality. But, my friend, false teachers will use Christian vocabulary, but not the Christian dictionary. In other words, they will twist theological terms to mean what they want them to mean. Paul directly addressed this issue as well in 1 Thessalonians 2.5. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. How many believers... Failing to heed Peter's exhortation to add knowledge to their biblical foundation, listen to or read these charlatans and believe them to be genuine and sound. Beware, my friends, they are not ministers, but merchandisers. And it's interesting that the same ones peddling fabricated stories were accusing the apostles of teaching myths to support the Lord's coming. Now likely the false teachers fabricated Stories involving the Lord's coming. Second Peter 3, 3-4. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after our own lust, saying, Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And friend, make no mistake that a denial of the Lord's coming, a denial of the return of Christ, 
sets the stage for people to embrace immorality. Remember, the Lord is coming to judge the living and the dead, 1 Peter 4, 5. And without a fear of coming judgment, believers will be quick to engage in immorality. Now, there's a final warning about false teachers, and that is that they are doomed to judgment. Their judgment, verse 3, from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. The final warning about false teachers is that they are doomed to judgment. Peter employs Hebrew parallelism, uh, which was known in, to be used in the Psalms and in the Proverbs, with these two statements. In many ways, this would be a proverb. The judgment parallels the destruction, and idol parallels asleep. Though false teachers deny their coming judgment, Peter assures believers that their judgment is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Now, judgment, or condemnation, refers to the rendering of a legal decision of guilt. Included with that decision is punishment for the crime. The term destruction, again, apalia, defines the punishment, which is damnation in the lake of fire. Matthew 25, 46. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Revelation 20, 14 to 15. Death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 21, verse 8. For the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, that, that sums up false prophets, their part will be in the lake of fire that burns with brimstone, which is the second death. Now the term idle means not at work. And asleep means to slumber, doze, or, or sleep. See, just because they do not believe their, in their judgment does not mean it's not coming. The judgment against false teachers is indeed at work. It is not sleeping on the job. And that the destruction is not asleep personifies destruction as an executor who stands always ready to administer punishment. See, God's judgment against false teachers has been at work from long ago. That is, their judgment has been planned for a long time. According to Jude 4, these false teachers were, quote, long beforehand marked out for their condemnation. And in particular, long ago refers to God's declaration of judgment upon false teaching in Deuteronomy 13 and again in Ezekiel. While physical death was the judgment under the theocratic kingdom, it pointed to a future judgment which results in the second death, eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. Five warnings given to us about false teachers. Again, false teachers are a continuous threat. Number two, false teachers promote destructive heresies. Number three, false teachers promote alluring immorality. Number four, false teachers have impure motives. And number five, false teachers are doomed to judgment. Friends, Satan will plant his false teachers anywhere God plants teachers of truth. And I want you to consider five questions to examine if someone is a false teacher. First, what is the source of their message? If the Bible is not the primary document of their message, they are a false teacher. Second, do they believe that the scriptures are inspired and inerrant? If they deny that the Bible is from God or that it contains error, they are a false teacher. Third, does their message conform with biblical orthodoxy? 
If their message preaches another gospel or something contrary to sound doctrine and they refuse to acknowledge and fix their message, they're a false teacher. Fourth, does their message condemn sin or encourage it? Listen, if they refuse to condemn sin or even extol the virtues of immorality, they're a false teacher. And finally, what kind of fruit or virtues are evident in their life? If they are not producing biblical virtues regularly, but instead regularly produce vices, they are a false teacher. My friends, you must take seriously Peter's warning about false teachers and their teachings. As J.C. Ryle stated, controversy in religion is a hateful thing. It's hard enough to fight the devil, the world, and the flesh without private differences in our own camp. But there is one thing which is even worse than controversy, and that is false doctrine tolerated, allowed, and permitted without protest or molestation. Three things there are which men never ought to trifle with. A little poison, a little sin, and a little false doctrine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. And while we confess that it's probably not one of our favorite texts, it's needful for us. We need to be warned that there are false teachers. And this entire second chapter is all about false teachers. And obviously, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, Peter knew the danger of false teaching. And so, Father, while these texts may not be popular or may not be comfortable or may not be encouraging, they are necessary to protect us. We're to grow in godliness. And part of growing in godliness means that we, our truth detector needs to be prepared to detect anything which is false. Father, I pray for each of us, Lord, each person listening to this message, that, Father, you would establish them in truth. That, Father, you would uh, encourage and exhort them through your Spirit to add knowledge to their biblical doctrine foundation so that when the, this nonsense, when false teachers or false teaching comes their way, that, Lord, their truth detector will go off and warn them that something is amok. And in doing so, Father, that you may protect and preserve them from being damaged beyond repair. So, Father, give us your wisdom. Give us your discernment. We pray in your Son's precious name. Amen.